Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're again joined by Keith Preston to discuss Israel and all the goings on that have happened recently with the, uh, the fight, the fighting and the bombing and more on the history of Israel and how we've got to the situation that uh, we are presently in. Tim. Well, my first set of questions for Keith on this issue, and I don't think we should get lost too much in the parlance of the term, although that might annoy some people, is is on this conflict is one of the problems I have with a lot of the pro-Palestinian people um, is they don't really have a solution. I guess their solution is they want the U.S. to leave entirely uh, in some degree, uh, which would come with its own solutions. Turkey would dominate or some other power, Russia or some other power over there would dominate. Um, but that the, even if you buy into certain aspects of the Peter Zeelian theory, uh, total global retreat is not going to happen. So a lot of the like Western Israeli pro-Palestinian people, the Glenn Greenwalds and your Noam Chomsky's, they're basically social democrats, and their basic solution it seems to be a one-state social democracy, and maybe the tradition more in a two-state. But the problem I don't really see social democracy um, with the current ethnic and social breakup, especially Considering the recent history, I mean, lots of grievances, in particularly in Palestine and Gaza. Uh, you know, if if there was just if if the solution they seem to want to have um, implicitly is have them all vote for the Israeli, have a one state, and all vote for the Israeli parliament. Now, this could work if they're all like sympathetic Arabs, I will call them Uncle Tom type Arabs that they, that do exist in Israel proper, um, but the kind that exists in the outside. Um, by definition, would not work. So, so do you agree, Keith, in general, that um, um, that a liberal social democracy of the kind in Sweden or the kind in you know Western Europe would not really work with the current setup? And is that a blind spot for many of the sort of Western pro-Palestinian Chomsky, Greenlaw, etc.? Uh, I mean, a lot of the solutions to me are laughably utopian um, to a certain extent. And what is would be your solution for the region, considering that democracy? As such, like, you know, Southeastern Europe democracy has been a failure. I mean, you have the Lebanese system, which you've pointed out in other areas I've heard once. Um, what would be your solution as a as a pan anarchist in that region? Keith? Well, you've asked a lot of questions in one. I'll try to go through those without being too long winded. Um, as for the question of uh, whether. It, it, a, a unitary liberal social democracy would work in Israel and Palestine. The first thing I'd point out is that li Israel right now is not a liberal social democracy in a Western sense. Um, it does have elements of Western culture. Um, for instance, there are people in the libertarian camp and other places who are pro-Israel and they'll say, well, uh, you know, Israel is more libertarian than, say, a normal Islamic society would be because it has a gay subculture, it has a drug culture, it has all that stuff. Um, but it's also true that Israel is, um, you know, it, it, internally, Israel is kind of like what the Jim Crow South in the United States was. Uh, you know, it's, it's basically, they still have a system of ethnic segregation and also a system where the Jewish religion is favorite over over the other religions as well. Uh, so it's not an entirely uh, liberal society the way Westerners would conceive of it. Uh, it's more like the kind of societies that, you know, Western influence societies had, you know, say in the pre-civil rights era. It's more like America prior to the 1960s or like the old South African system. Now, that's in, just in Israel itself. The West Bank is probably closer to something like uh, apartheid in the sense that uh, it's, it's literally partitioned into different sex, uh, sectors for Isra uh, Israelis and, and uh, Arabs. And I would argue that the Gaza Strip is probably something more like the, the, the Warsaw Ghetto, that is the Jewish ghetto that existed in Poland in early in the Nazi uh, occupation era, where the Jews were forced into this uh, ghetto-like uh, circumstance that was constantly under attack and was pretty much at the mercy of the, of the Germans. That's kind of the situation that the people in Gaza are in. Uh, for people who want to know more about this, I would suggest watching uh, some of the videos that Abby Martin has done about this that really gets in, uh, into some detail about how they're 
how Israel and the occupied territories actually work internally. Also, Kim Iverson. There's a YouTuber named Kim Iverson. She's been there. Both of them have actually been there and and documented this as much as they're allowed to um, about how their system actually works. So it's not true that Israel is a modern Western style liberal democracy in the same way Westerners today would conceive of it. Uh, Now, as far as the idea of, well, could you combine Israel as it is now with the Palestinian uh, territories, Gaza and the West Bank, and make that into some unitary state uh, that was a liberal democracy, I'd say that was very difficult. That would be very difficult to achieve. Uh, You're talking about two groups of people that have um, very uh, long standing, generations long, decades long, um, hostility to each other and, and trying to put them under the same electoral roof in that sense would be difficult. Um, there are certainly people who favor that. There are, there are Israelis as well as Palestinians who favor that, but I think trying to make that happen on a practical level would be extremely difficult. Uh, it would be kind of like trying to uh, uh, make India and Pakistan into a singular uh, state or uh, or one of those other kinds of situations where you have two uh, geographically proximate but uh, populations that are longstanding enemies of each other. So I, I do agree that the ideas that you see among people like, say, Noam Chomsky and some of the other figures you mentioned of a unitary, liberal democratic, social democratic state for all the people in the region, uh, I think is wishful thinking. I, I don't really see that happening. Uh, what, what were your other questions? My other questions would be, what would be your solution? I mean, what would be your insight as a pan-anarchist um, regarding uh, Israel? I mean, to me, this seems more like the you brought up. I've heard of the number talk or something. You brought up Lebanese as sort of a model of a sort of, a, sort of society that is kind of uh, divided in a way. What are the what would be the features and bugs of that kind of system regarding um, Israel? And what would be your insight somewhat as a pan-anarchist, a sort of way out of there? We're sort of talking about way we got there. So I'll ask some more questions later on that. But what were your solutions there? Well, Lebanon, uh, as we know, had a civil war that went on for about 15 years. And it wasn't just uh, two sides to that civil war. It was more like dozens of different sides. It was more like the kind of gang warfare that you see in American cities where, um, you know, you'll have, uh, you know, three dozen gangs trying to control the same neighborhood or something like that. Um, and that's what happened during the Civil War in Lebanon. Now, the system that Lebanon has today is what's called a consociational system, uh, meaning that they have representation based on, in, in their case, sectarian affiliation, mostly re- religious affiliation, because the sectarian conflict that you see in uh, Lebanon is predominantly between, say, Shia and Sunni and Alawite and Jews and Maronite Christians, and, and they also have communists and Palestinians and all of that. Uh, but what, what that means is that the state is structured so that certain offices are guaranteed to, say, the Maronite Christians, and some are guaranteed to the Shia, and some are guaranteed to the Druze, and some are guaranteed to the uh, Sunni or whatever. Um, yeah, it would be like, say, in the United States, if you had, well, okay, the, the one one federal office, like, you know, the Speaker of the House must always be a Democrat and the uh, and the Secretary of State must always be a Republican and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court must always be you know, a libertarian or, or something like that. Um, you know, they they assign different uh, major major positions to uh, leaders, leaders of different groups and, and representation in parliament and all of that is based more on sectarian affiliation rather than things like geographical area. Like in the United States, theoretically at least, um, representation is supposed to be based on geographical area. You have two senators from each state and, you know, the the individual states get X number of representatives based on population. With, uh, with, With Lebanon, they break it down more by sectarian affiliation. And they have something like 20 parties in their parliament. I mean, there's a lot of sectarian groups. And they're a small country. They're the size of about one of the American states. Um, I think something closer to that is what it would take to have a a unitary state in Israel and and the West Bank and and Gaza. 
you know, I think you'd have to have something where there was a permanent power sharing agreement where, you know, Arab, you know, Christian Arabs and, and Jews and, um, and, and, you know, Arab Israelis and Muslims and, and, and Christian Palestinians and Jewish Palestinians and, and all of these other uh, different sectarian groups, you know, each get a proportional number of seats in the parliament or whatever kind of representative body they have, the, the Knesset, you know, uh, you, a certain number of cabinet seats, a certain number of court seats and all of that. Uh, that's you know, that's kind of this, the way Le- the Lebanese system works. And, and a permanent power sharing arrangement like that uh, is, is the only kind of you know, democratic or quasi-democratic system I think you could have in Israel and the occupied territories. I think if you tried to have a, you know, like an American-style system or even a European-style system uh, in, in that region, it would be a disaster. I mean, it would just collapse into a civil war overnight. Uh, so I think some kind of power-sharing arrangement would be necessary. And they would have to have some kind of federal system. They would have to have some kind of system where different cultural groups or different uh, religious groups and ethnic groups are largely self-managed, which would be, I guess, the closest thing I know of to that in, uh, around the world, at least of anything that's well known, is uh, Israel. I mean, uh, uh, Switzerland. Switzerland is uh, a small country anyway, but uh, you know, you could also fit about 50 Switzerlands into the United States. But Switzerland is subdivided into a couple of dozen or so uh, what they call cantons. And the cantons are the, the basis of most government functions in Switzerland. And then they have different uh, cantons for different ethnic groups. Um, Switzerland is a, a multi-ethnic system. You have Italian Swiss and German Swiss and French Swiss and uh, Romanosh Swiss. Are they, I'm not sure if they have others or not, but it, but it's a, a power sharing agreement more or less between different ethnic and ethno-linguistic groups. You know, even to the point in some of their local communities, they call them communes uh, in Switzerland that are also mi- mixed ethnically and mixed linguistically. You'll actually have interpreters at uh, you know uh, town council meetings to interpret the proceedings, just like you have interpreters at the UN. You know, that's how they're how diverse their system is. But something like that, some, some sort of hybrid of probably the Swiss system and the Lebanese system, I think, is probably the only kind of democratic state that would even have a chance of being able to function uh, in Israel and in the occupied territories. Trying to remake Israel in the image of, say, Sweden or, or you know, or the United States would be a disaster. How would you approach the situation uh, of Israel? Would you would you advocate for that sort of position, uh, or or if you got any of the alternatives as a sort of a, a pan-secessionist? Uh, well, um, as far as any proposal that anybody anywhere has actually rolled out, uh, one of the most interesting was actually proposed by the son of the late Colonel Gaddafi. Um, uh, his name was Safal. Saf al-Aslam Gaddafi, that was the son of the former leader of Libya, he actually put out a proposal for uh, combining Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza into a country that he called Israten. Um, you can actually look this up on, online, by the way. There's a Wikipedia entry that describes this. But to a large degree, it was what I just described. It was sort of a, a, sort of a, a, a unitary state but one that's internally confederated or federalized between the different ethnic and religious groups in the in the area, um, and in a way that involves power sharing agreements as well. I, I think some some version of what I just described is more or less the only possible solution I think to Israel and Palestine. Now I would probably go further than that if it was up to me. If I was giving up the uh, giving the advice, I would probably say. You know, to localize governmental authority, say on the village level or on the town level, um, and then allow different, say, villages and towns to confederate with each other based on on mutual needs. You know, perhaps the the state itself, I mean, the the Israeli uh, state itself, or or whatever would be called Israel Palestine or whatever. Uh, perhaps that could be something that's uh, where you have X numbers of people representing each sectarian group or whatever on the council 
but but leave as much as possible to the localities, to the localities, you know, the villages and the towns and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, the the any kind of central government or whatever would be uh, strictly for, say, maintaining the military in case, you know, Egypt or whoever tries to overrun them. Um, yeah, but I, I would I would try to localize control over everything, particularly cultural stuff, particularly education and and all of the things that are really divisive, religious practices and marital law and all of that kind of stuff, because, um, you know, they have a system like in Israel proper, the it's basically Jewish religious law that governs the society. Now, it's a fairly liberal interpretation of Jewish religious law. It's not like Sharia, say, in, in Saudi Arabia or somewhere like that. Um, so it's not this kind of Old Testament fundamentalism like some of the ultra-Orthodox get into. Uh, but it's still a Jewish state. Israel is a theocracy. It's a Jewish state, and it's an ethno-state. It's, you know, they, they will tell you, yeah, we are a state for Jews. You know, there are Israeli Arabs who are citizens, but they're kind of like settlers second-class citizens, you know, kind of like blacks in America prior to civil rights. And then the people in the occupied territory, they're not considered, you know, citizens. They're, they're, they're just literally under occupation. It's interesting uh, that you bring up the sort of occupation, because the next uh, area I was thinking of going to was uh, the question on sort of like legal versus illegal settlements and sort of immigration uh, in, in general. Um, even if you were to say you think you know, Zionism was a, was kind of a bad idea, you know, um, should they not be able to try a bad idea? Uh, socialism, have socialist states to do it. You could try Zionism there. Um, you could also make the claim, you know, that these the uh, the Jews sort of stole stole land from the Palestinian Arabs or or whatever. Well, okay, yeah, maybe they did, but it's not as if I mean, name a country which actually has sort of like a um, um a very sort of white beginning you know m most states will have some form of sort of original sins uh as, as it were um and even if um even if they were there even if they shouldn't be there you know could you even get should you get rid of them i mean should you be able to evict them uh you know so um th this then brings an the interesting question to the left and so like why why is the left against sort of the Israeli settlements and um, if the Israeli settlements are bad you know where should they go should they just be evicted and where would they be put you know do you put them back into camp somewhere else do you put them out elsewhere uh, you know how how does sort of the the distinction between sort of legal and legal settlements works and uh, and the left in particular you know what do they think should happen to the Israeli settlements what should it do with the Israelis there should they just be booted out you know What's the sort of general leftist uh, view on this matter? Are you are you talking about the settlements in the West Bank? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the yeah. source of the controversy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, as far as you know, that's multiple questions in, in one as well. Um, as far as the creation of Israel, Zionism is something that developed in the 19th century. And it was part of the growing liberal nationalist um, tendencies of the time. You know, nowadays people think of nationalism as being right wing, but in, in those days nationalism was grew in, you know, in, in part uh, part and parcel with uh, liberalism and also with socialism because nationalism was more or less the idea where, where you had people that shared a common ethnicity, language, and all of that. Uh, that were tended to be split up under uh, royal dynastic empires or fragment, fragmented into microstates. Uh, and then you had this idea, well, there should be a unitary state for people of all, you know, German uh, heritage or Italian or, or something. And, and that's how we got some of these modern countries. That's how we got uh, uh, Germany and, and Italy and, and, and even France to some degree. The uh, French Revolution, one of the things they did was emphasize the creation of a unitary French nation and unitary language and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so nationalism has its roots in, in modern thinking. Um, Zionism was created by secular, mostly by secular Jews, secular liberal and, and socialist Jews, who after the Dreyfus affair in France, they thought that Jews in Europe would never be free of anti-Semitism. So they decided that they needed a 
Jewish homeland, and, and uh, you know they worked with the British on uh, on the British Empire on trying to get a, a Jewish homeland, and the British Empire was fine with giving the uh, the Jews a homeland in Uganda. Uganda was a British territory at the time, and it was largely uninhabited, or at least the region where they wanted to create the Jewish homeland was uninhabited. And a lot of Jews were like, no, we want the Holy Land. Uh, so that led to the Balfour Declaration and the whole process that led to the creation of Israel in 1948. And, of course, during that time, you had a Zionist movement where you had a lot of Jews that would go back and just sort of settle in, in, in the uh, what they call the Holy Land, um, you know, just on their own. I mean, you had communist versions of this. You had socialist Zionism. You had, you know, uh, religious Zionism. Um, you know, all of that kind of stuff was going on during those decades. And then finally, uh, Israel was created in 1948. Uh, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. I mean, first, you had Jewish armed insurgent movements uh, in the region that were trying to create a state of their own. Um, the British and the Americans thought having a, a, an outpost, you know, creating a state in the Middle East that would be allied with the West would be a strategically advantageous idea, you know, as opposed to, uh, say, Soviet influence in the region and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I think there was some, you know, sympathy for the Jews after what happened in World War II. I think that was part of it as well. Uh, you know, another, another thing is that Harry Truman had a good friend who was Jewish, who was a big supporter of Zionism. And I think that influenced Harry Truman to become uh, pro-Israel, uh, who was the U.S. president at the time. Um, so, you know, all of that is what led to the creation of Israel and the ethnic cleansing that happened during the during the time that Israel was created uh, and, and everything that's happened since then. Um, and, you know, as far as the, how the left sees this, it's, it's interesting how in the West, the, the left and the anti-Semites, the radical left and the anti-Semites, the right wing anti-Semites tend to overlap in many ways because the. Um, the radical left sees Israel as a European white colonial settler state. I mean, they see Israel as being the same thing as the Americans, you know, who, you know, the English Americans who sent, who settled the North America and subjugated the Native American nations, or they see it as the equivalent of the uh, English and Dutch who's created a settler state in South Africa and created apartheid. So they see Israel as a repeat of that. You know, that's like Israel is a variation of, of white uh, European uh, settler states. Um, and, and of course, you have thinkers like Chomsky and others who see Israel as largely a military outpost of the United States. Uh, you know, that's their, their interpretation of the relationship between the two. Uh, on the other hand, you, on the other end of the political spectrum, you see the the right wing anti-Semites. You know, they just see Israel as part of the Jewish conspiracy, and they think that you know it's, the, it's because the Jews are running America and that kind of stuff that the uh, Americans have this kind of re, um, relationship with Israel. So it's interesting how the far left and far right um, overlap. Um, I, I don't think there's that many people today who are say pro-Palestinian or sympathetic to the Palestinian cause that think Israel is going to be done away with. You know, I mean, Israel today is a nuclear armed power with a first world army and first world economy. So Israel's not going anywhere. They'll they'll light up the Middle East before they will ever be overrun. Uh, I think most serious people are look at it from the point of view that the United States needs to lean on Israel to um, to ease up a bit on the Palestinian question and uh, come up with some kind of settlement to that kind of issue, to that problem. Um, because the, the, in my interpretation of the relationship between Israel and the, the United States is that Israel is a, is a guaranteed export market for the American arms manufacturers. Israel is the single largest recipient of American aid money and then written into that or is a requirement that Israel has to use a certain amount of that to purchase armaments from Americans' arm, armaments manufacturers. So that's really the, the nature of that relationship. You know, Israel is given money, but then they're told, okay, you need to use that money to buy weapons from you know, Lockheed and Raytheon and 
all of these different uh, Boeing and all of these different uh, American arms manufacturers. So, you know, that's the real relationship between the two. And then there's a similar relationship between America and Saudi Arabia as well. Um, so that, I think, is the real source of the relationship between the two countries. And then internally, of course, you have a, an Israel lobby that is aligned with a lot of other interests uh, that have a stake in Israel. The arms manufacturers are one. You have this Christian Zionist movement, uh, which is another. And, and then there's still more. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the the, um, the settlements in the West Bank, it's it's that is viewed by critics of Israel as simply an uh, as simply an effort to eth ethnically cleanse the, the area, to ethnically cleanse the West Bank of, of the Palestinian presence, uh, this, just through expansionism. Uh, so that's why the, um, the settlements are so controversial. I'd like to ask a follow-up on that. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't the pro-Palestinian people argue like the 1948 settlements? Not the existing um, ones that lived there before 1948, the significant plurality um, in certain areas, probably a majority. But wouldn't the, wouldn't the true pro-Palestinian people want to want to create their own ethnic state of some variety or at least have a super majority in a way um, and go back to like the pre? Wouldn't they argue like the current like the settlements they've they were given in the mandate or what? Well, well. This is where the Chomsky guys sometimes are inconsistent in my view. They take the UN mandate, which gives some – I think the, it divides them up in sort of all kind of different lines. But wouldn't they argue like the initial settlements, not just the new settlements? They don't like those either. They'll hold – they'll moderate their position, just say no new, new settlements. But that itself is a moderate position based on um, losing out in the 68 and 73 as well, the 48 war. What would you what would you respond to that? <clears throat> well, there's a wide range of opinions on that. Um, I think most people who are pro-Palestinian who are on the left pretty much today accept that Israel is here to stay. You know, they just want this one state solution. You know, they want to combine them all into one state. Um, there are some people who argue that the creation of Israel itself was illegitimate. That it's basically just an uh, an, uh, an, uh, an imperialist occupation. There are others who don't take it that far. Although that latter point is is the position of many opponents of Israel. For example, Hezbollah's position, I believe, is still that Israel doesn't have any right to exist. I think that's the official uh, position of Iran uh, at this point. Uh, so there are certainly uh, there are some Palestinian resistance groups that hold to that position as well. Uh, but I, I don't think that that point of view is viable. I mean, I don't think that the point of view that says, well, there's not going to be any more Israel. It's just not going to happen. Not when you're dealing with, a, you know, like I said, a nuclear armed power with the first world army. It's just, you know, that's, you know, it, whether creating Israel was a mistake or not, whether it was something that's justifiable or according to whatever criteria or not, uh, is kind of beside the point. I mean, Israel is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. So the question is, what, where does it go from here? Interesting. The, That's for, oh, it's you could take this. I'm just going to say, uh, what is this? What is the proposed solution to the West Bank? If if they're sort of uh, the argument is they're ethnically cleansing the area, is, is the idea that uh, they should just stop doing it and sort of like leave the Jews who happen to be there there, or or is the proposal to sort of like remove them from the West Bank? Uh, I, I'm not, haven't been entirely clear in the past as to what. There, these there are people that be. hold the both perspectives. There are people who hold to the views that, OK, well, the settlements that are there in the West Bank can stay. There are others who say, no, those should be dismantled. And the Jews that are in that place, they should go back to Israel proper. So there's there, there's both opinions on that. You can find people who argue for both. As far as the um, you, you sort of hinted at the, you know, the lean on Israel point, which comes into the third set of questions I have regarding this. Um, um, which I'll move out of the second question is on foreign influence. Um, here in the, all of us are in the West, Britain, United States here, most of our listeners as well. I guarantee all our listeners um, and U.S. and earlier, the British actually played a key role early on in this. But recently, it's mainly the U.S. influence. Um, um, and, and in my opinion, the U.S. has had two trajectories before and after the 68 to 73 period before that and after that uh, before that. I mean, you've had an article uh, you sort of agree with my interpretation in a way there's a power balancing and then after that the US has largely basically taken the side outright of 
Israel with, of course, the Camp David Accords, uh, the, you know, sending aid to Israel and Egypt to pretend to be friends with them um, and so forth. Uh, you know, but I would argue that Israel uh, itself is a independent sovereign power in itself. It's, I, I think the interpretation that, that Israel is a sycophant of the United States is is wrong. I would, if anything... This is the, and this is where the you brought this up with the like you know the, the far left and the the far left and the far right might agree on this is actually the other way around it actually influences U.S. politics. Um. So, but but Israel being independent in that regard is a both feature and a bug for the people who want a more equitable, if I can use that word, solution for the Palestinians because Israel Israel fights for its own Netanyahu at all fight for their own Ben Gurion at all fight for their own interests. Not the interest of the Palestinians or the Americans or the American left. Um, so do you think Israel itself – you've pointed out the nuclear weapons, first world economy, first world, first world army, and so forth. Um, is Israel independent of the Americans or dependent on them, and who exactly controls whom? Well, the, the range of views on that is, is also very diverse. Um, most people from the left in the United States – probably would agree more or less with Noam Chomsky. Chomsky's view is that Israel is largely just an outpost of the United States, that it is, you know, uh, the United States supports Israel largely as a military outpost and armaments uh, manufacturers market and the things I was describing earlier. Uh, Now, there is uh, the other point of view, uh, and it's not just the far right, you know, neo-Nazis or anti-Semites or whatever who believe this. You even find some um, Jews who are very critical of Israel, like Gilad Osman, for example, who believe this. Uh, And they will say just the opposite. They'll say Israel. They'll say America is basically a colony of Israel. Uh, I've heard. In fact, I had a personal conversation once with Gilad Osman where he said that, uh, you know, he says your country is just a colony of my country. Um, but uh, the uh, I, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I, I think the two countries have something of a symbiotic relationship. Israel has more influence in the United States than uh, than just being, uh, say, a colonial outpost or military base or something like that. You know, for for that to be true, that would that's like you know that would be. You know, that would be like saying Israel has the same status of, say, Colombia or, you know, some other country that is you know, clearly a client state of the United States, but is also clearly dependent. I mean, it's obvious who's calling the shots in, 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 in those kinds of situations. Um, yeah, you know, I think Israel has more influence over the United States than that, than, than to just be the, the equivalent of a protectorate or, or a third world client state or something like that. Um, I don't. I wouldn't put it so far. Take it so far as to say that America is a colony of Israel either. I mean, I, that's greatly overstating it. Um, I'd say it's kind of like Israel. I think is comparable to say one of the American states that has a great deal of influence over the federal government, like say New York or California or Texas or one of those. You know, we, I mean, te- you know, one of those big states is not. Um, is not the entirety of the United States. They don't have full veto power over what the entire United States does, but they are important and they do exercise influence and national policymakers do care about how their policies are going to be perceived in some of those major states. Um, I think that's you know probably a better analogy. Or we could compare Israel to uh, you know a, a, some of the corporations in the United States that have uh, a lot of influence and power over the over. Uh, Policymaking and things like that, you know, some of the uh, the largest uh, manufacturers or or in, in technological firms or uh, other other entities of that type, you know. So Israel, I think, is you know, it's not something that controls the entire United States, like some anti-Israelis say. Um, but it's not just a, a, a protectorate or a dependency either. You know, it's kind of a symbiotic symbiotic relationship. I'm um, speaking of foreign influence and so forth. Uh, the the claim that oftentimes is made by the Chomsky Greenwald, and I've seen you make some much more moderated claims, but the idea is that because the U.S. sends weapons indirectly or directly, uh, they buy them and send them money and so forth, uh, that in some ways Americans are in some ways culpable or responsible in a certain indirect way for facilitating this conflict. 
uh, uh, you know, paying for this, paying for this, uh, you know, apartheid regime. Now, again, the the Ben Shapiro's and David Horowitz types would would not like that description of that. Um, but you know, if to get the left's sort of dream, to get the to get the you know some kind of solution that would be viewed as equitable, you know, the conciliatory confederate the confederation, uh, you know, what why have they been so ineffective? Um, to say the least. I mean, if anything, Israel continues to expand in certain areas, maybe not expand as fast as the Shapiros and the Horowitz would want them to expand, but but they have won a fairly decent chunk of land in, the, in throughout their territories. Um, so what explains the the the, the general failure um, to change public opinion? Because if it, if, if it to the extent that it is American influence, um, which they want to do away with, and they think they could improve. Um, they haven't been able to done that. And to what extent is this due? To, because I, I, my theory is that, you know, the, the classic line is like, it is true that many of the critics, for example, of Ben Shapiro are actually anti-Semites. I mean, he gets a lot of tweets and actually, actually alt-right himself don't like him. But then again, it is true. So two things can be true in that regard. Um, so I do view it as a sort of a quite a dicey onion uh, to chop up. And and, and Chomsky himself and the Greenwalds, they're quick to call anyone who disagrees with them, you know, or, or you know, you had some run-ins, too, with various other groups, too, the quick to call anyone who disagrees with them a fascist. So I do think I do think that is a quite a poison well. So what explains the sort of failure for them to make any progress based on their goals? Keith? Uh, are you asking what accounts for the failure of the pro-Palestinian side in American politics to gain more influence? Or yes, because because of the role that U.S. as they claim the U.S. is American military outbase, so then the onus is on United States to change, not the domestic people over there. Yes. Right. Right. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, first of all, the pro-Palestinian sectors in the United States have traditionally had very little influence uh, when compared to the pro-Israel sectors. Uh, when it comes to the pro-Israel sectors in the United States, you've got the armaments manufacturers who make money selling armaments to Israel. You've got military interests who do see uh, Israel as a valuable Middle Eastern ally. Um, you've got the Israel lobby itself, which does exercise a lot of uh, influence over American um, uh, elect, the elect, American electoral system and the party system and all of that. Uh, you've got the American media, um, which has long been uh, very sympathetic to to Israel. Um, you know, the most most elected officials, at least until very recently, uh, were pro-Israel. Uh, you've got the Christian Zionists. You've got the you know, the Christians who are pro-Israel for religious reasons. Uh, you know, you you have a lot of people who are sympathetic to Israel because they you know, feel bad because of bad things that have been done to Jewish people in the past, the Holocaust and a lot of things before that. Um, you know, we have people from the left who don't want to be seen as anti-Semitic. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why the pro-Palestinian movement hasn't gained any more influence than it has. Uh, you know, I mean, there's not a whole lot of Palestinian Americans. There, there's still not that many Arab Americans or Muslim Americans. There's more than there used to be. Um, but uh, that you know, those those have at least until very recently been very small uh, population groups. Um, you know, even within the Middle East itself, the Palestinian people are not well liked by other Arabs. Uh, you know, they you know they they have the same status say as poor black people in the United States or maybe the uh, American Indian tribes or, or whatever. Uh, so it's not like that the other Arab countries have. You know, cared that much about what happens to the Palestinians either, uh, and that's particularly the case now because more and more of those countries, Arab countries, are essentially American client states. That's certainly true of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Uh, they've become all of those have become closer to Israel over time. That's true of Egypt. Uh, you know, for, since 1979, America has more or less pretended, uh, or has, America has more or less paid Egypt to at least pretend to be friendly to. Uh, Israel, um, you know, that's Jordan. Jordan uh, receives tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars per year from the United States in aid. Uh, so all of these countries that surround Israel and Palestine are, you know, either just 
don't generally don't care about the Palestinian situation to start with, or they're heavily dependent on the United States for, for aid and things like that as well. So there's a long, long, long list of reasons why the pro-Palestinian uh, movement has not gained much influence in the United States. I mean, you're, you've got all this, you know, this full array of obstacles to overcome. You know, the entire political class, a lot of powerful lobbies, a lot of powerful economic interest, and military interest, and religious interest, and popular opinion, and, and all kinds of things. Uh, you know, in fact, now in uh, in Congress, we actually have uh, two. I think there's two Muslims in, in Congress now in the United States out of 535 Congress people. You know, there's Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib herself is a Palestinian. Uh, you know, I, but that is a very new phenomenon. I mean, that's not something that you know existed e- even a few years ago. Uh, so I, I do think that will change over time. Um, I, I think so, to some degree it's a generational thing. Uh, more, older people tend to be much more sympathetic to Israel than younger people. Also, the younger generation of Jews uh, increasingly you know have no interest in, in Israel. They either see themselves as Americans and, and, and they're secular and they just don't care about Israel, you know, any more than say, you know, the average American young person cares about England or Germany or Sweden or wherever their ancestors would have come from. Um, also the Jewish, you know, the younger Jewish leftists are not as pro-Israel as some of their, their older uh, counterparts are. Uh, among a lot of older American Jews, they may learn, lean very far left on most issues, but on, on Israel, they often swing back to the right. Um, you know, and there there's reasons why they feel that way, historical reasons and, and things like that. But that's true. That's not as true among younger people. So I do think over time, uh, public opinion on Israel is going to change and public opinion on Palestine is going to change. And it's going to change in the same way we've seen public opinion change about so many other things. For instance, uh, gay rights, you know, gay rights used to be, you know, a very verboten, very marginal subject matter. Uh, now it's mainstream. It's the majority, um, you know, or, or now even uh, legalizing marijuana now is more or less the, the prevailing viewpoint in the United States. And I think the Palestinian issue is going to uh, evolve in that way over time. Given the um, potential change in attitude from the Americans towards Israel, uh, Keith, uh, what do you think the future of Israel is? Do you think they'll end up getting less American support? And if they do, how is this going to change um, what they end up doing with the uh, the enemies in the surrounding areas, or um, how how do you see that going? Uh, that could go a number of ways. I, I think if the Americans were to start pulling back their support from Israel or making support more conditional on certain things, uh, it's it's possible Israel could be motivated to change, or they may try to go the other direction. Uh, they may try to just go at it alone and say, you know, you know, forget you, uh, we'll just do it ourselves. Uh, that latter scenario is entirely possible, given that Israel is becoming more, quote unquote, right wing all the time. Uh, and interestingly, um, Israel is one of the few countries around the world where the young people are increasingly right wing. Uh, if you uh, go to Israel and just poll people randomly in the street, you'll find that younger people are often, you know, hardcore Zionist, you know, what in, in the West would be called a right-wing nationalist or a, uh, a racist or a racial supremacist or Jewish supremacist or whatever, uh, when it comes to the Palestinians that are often less li- liberal about those kinds of things than older uh, Israelis are. So it's entirely possible that you could end up with a regime in Israel in the future that was some sort of, uh, you know, almost like a, uh, a Jewish version of neo-Nazism or Jewish version of, say, Wahhabism in, in Saudi Arabia or, you know, that kind of that kind of religious uh, fundamentalism or ethnic uh, chauvinism or whatever that just says, OK, if the Americans don't back us, we're just going to go at it alone and we've got nuclear weapons. We can do that. That's entirely possible. Uh, or or it's also possible the Israelis could pull back a bit and, and uh, you know, work out some kind of settlement along the way. Uh, I do think this, I, I do think that if there is going to be a settlement at some point and there, you know, something's going to be conceded to the Palestinians or, 
or you know a, a unitary federal regime is going to be created or something like that i think outside influence is going to have to be involved you know i don't really see the israelis saying okay well we'll now have a swiss model system and you know the palestinians will have their own cantons and everybody will live happily ever after you know i think to make that work the palestinian territories would essentially have to become protectorates of some outside entity whether it's nato whether it's the european union whether it's the uh united nations whether it's the gulf cooperation council whether it's the united states itself uh you know in fact that's how it is in lebanon lebanon even though it has this uh, consociational confessional system i described earlier you know they're not in a state of civil war like they were for 15 years between 1975 and 1990 um, they still have u.n peacekeeper uh, forces there in lebanon that uh, are, are there to kind of keep uh, different um, hostilities between different sectarian groups from emerging again and of course you also have hezbollah in south lebanon which is uh, aligned with Iran, and they are the de facto government of South Lebanon. Um, so uh, you have that present. And I think, uh, I think you'd probably see a situation similar to that in Israel and Palestine. You know, you would still see Hamas and these other groups as, you know, the de facto government of Gaza or, uh, and then the Palestinian Authority uh, in the West Bank. Uh, and then you'd also see American or, you know, EU or NATO or somebody, uh, Egyptian or whatever forces there, um, keeping the peace between the two sides. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think outside involvement would probably be necessary on that level as well. To follow up on the question of outside involvement, um, has this sort of relates back to the, uh, the, the sort of third question I just asked is, is the United States a... Re- the latter scenario you described, Israel expands more and um, becomes even more, uh, quote unquote, rogue or whatever you want to call it. Um, this seems to imply that the United States has had a restraining influence on Israel, which is the contrary to what most people on the sort of, you know, the, the Western left, so to speak, has. Um, would you would you agree with that? Would you agree with that thesis in the sense that Israel, maybe Israel has both, maybe uh, things got both ways. But there is does seem to be that they are limited. Um, um, if, if, in my opinion, if, if there was no Western observers and they could militarily defend themselves, they would have just occupied the West Bank completely. Um, that would be my that would be my theory. If 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 they could actually get away with it, they would have no scruples in doing it. Um, it doesn't seem like uh, now maybe that maybe that's wrong. Maybe they would have to strategically balance their situation, make a more moderate approach. But do you think the United States overall has, or earlier Britain has had any restraining factor on them? Or is that is that sort of a somewhat silly hypothesis to have? Well, I, I think there's some truth to that in the sense that while Israel doesn't care about world opinion, I mean, every time uh, a resolution comes up in the UN, uh, that's that criticizes Israel for its treatment of the Palestinians. You know, virtually every country on earth will vote in favor of it, except two, and that's Israel and America. Uh, so I don't think the Israelis care the first thing about world opinion. Um, I do think that they care about uh, public opinion in the United States, and they care about you know what the Americans think because they don't want the Mar- the Americans to turn off the the aid. Um, over time, I think what has happened, though, is that the Israelis have gotten increasingly arrogant about that. Um, if you talk to people from the D.C. area who are involved in governmental affairs, you know, people who work in the civil service and people who work for lobbyists and all the kind of stuff like that, what they will typically tell you is that they hate dealing with the Israelis. They say they will say they would rather deal with the Saudis than deal with the Israelis. And they'll say because, you know, the, there's this common perception among a lot of you know dc insiders that the israelis are you know basically arrogant and you know not only that but ungrateful uh for you know assistance that's given to them and you know they they view it as an entitlement and then they think they've got you know america wrapped around their finger in fact uh um one of the uh, uh benjamin netanyahu he gave a speech once where he said that he says you know we've got america wrapped around our finger or something like that um 
and I, I do think that that may be the downfall of Israel eventually, because I know there was a change, particularly among the Democratic Party, there was a big change after uh, 2015 when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, was invited by the Republicans to come and uh, give an address to Congress uh, and bypassed the the Obama administration. You know, basically it was just a, you know, it, it was just the equivalent. It was the equivalent of a head of state. Uh, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it, it would be like say the Democrats invited uh, the uh, head of state of China, say Xi Jinping. To come and give an address to Congress and say, oh, by the way, F you Republicans, you know, we're just going to bypass the normal uh, uh, diplomatic channels. Th that's exactly what happened with Netanyahu's visit to the United States in 2015. And I think that kind of soured a lot of the Democrats on on Israel. Uh, and it was also during that time that we started to continue to see changes in U.S. society culturally and demographically and all that, where we see a rising uh, sympathy for uh, for the um, Palestinians and, and less enthusiasm for Israel. Um, but on one hand, it, Donald Trump was actually the most pro-Zionist or pro-Israel president the U.S. has ever had, uh, even more so than George W. Bush, more so than George H.W. Bush, more so than Ronald Reagan. Um, over time, the you know the the certainly the Republicans have become more and more pro-Israel, and and Trump, as I said, was the most pro-Israel president ever. At the same time, there's some evidence that the other side of the political spectrum is becoming increasingly anti-Israel, uh, or at least you know compared to what it once was. Um, as to whether America has a restraining effect on Israel, um, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. I, I think that incre increasingly over time, Israel's not worried about what America thinks. Uh, as to whether that was the case in the past, I think it was probably less so. Um, you know, I, I, it's, you know it's, as for the question of why doesn't Israel just go and flatten the West Bank or flatten Gaza, uh, there are certainly elements in Israel that would like to do that. Um, and there is a, there's also an Israeli opposition that's increasingly less influential, uh, but there's an Israeli opposition that stands opposed to that as well. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of different dynamics there. Plus, they have to be concerned about relations with surrounding states, Egypt and others. You know, the ones that are all Jordan, the ones that are all being paid by the United States to be friendly to Israel. Um, so, you know, all of those different things I think are something that Israeli foreign policymakers have to balance against one another. Thank you for joining us again, Keith. That's been uh, very interesting and insightful. I'd now just like to thank everybody for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please just uh, share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this content. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. <laughs>